Hey everyone, what's up? It's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival. Welcome to podcast episode number 242. Now, one of the most basic survival skills that anyone wanting to be more prepared needs to master is the science and art of fire building. But while anyone can build a fire when the sun is out, the wind's not blowing, and you're armed with a blowtorch and a gallon of gasoline, you and I both know that if it's a true life or death survival scenario, you're not going to be anywhere near that lucky, right? Well, that's why this week I really put a leading wilderness survival expert to the test to get some great tips on worst case scenario fire building. I learned a lot from this week's interview and I know that you will too. And as usual, don't worry about taking notes because we've done all the heavy lifting for you with this week's free cheat sheet covering all the main points. All you need to do is go on over to www.mcsmagazine.com 242 and download it all absolutely free. And now let's spark up this week's episode. Firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. One of the most famous tales of outdoor wilderness survival is Jack London's To Build a Fire. Now, In it, the protagonist struggles against the relentless enemy, the cold. His life hinges on his ability to build a fire to get warm again. And the fact is, when you're surviving against the elements, fire is life. Fire is the ability to boil water to make it safe to drink. Fire is the ability to cook food. Fire is the ability to signal for help. Fire is warmth when you're cold and could be the only thing between you and dying of hypothermia. That's why being able to start a fire is so fundamental to your survival skill set and why every bug out bag and survival kit includes or should include a fire building kit. But while pretty much anyone can start a fire under ideal conditions, you know as well as I do that fire making in any kind of extreme situation can be a lot more difficult. That's when building a fire or not building a fire could literally mean the difference between life and death. And today, our guest is here to help turn you into a master fire builder. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat Survival Magazine and executive director of the New World Patriot Alliance with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And for today's topic, please welcome back to the program, survival expert and trainer, Kevin Estella. Kevin, good to have you back, man. Hey, it's so great to be back, Jeff. Thanks for having me. No, this is, uh, I love getting your information. Look, I read all your articles in the magazines and um, I, you're, I love tapping into your cranium, man. So this is going to be really good. I've been looking for this one for a while here. Uh, listen, everybody, if you haven't heard any of our other previous um, interviews with Kevin at all, he's the owner and head instructor of Estella Wilderness Education and a contributing author for various websites and magazines. Just pick up any survival magazine out there. He probably has like 10 of the 11 articles that are actually in the magazine. He just wrote, actually wrote an incredible book on survival. I'm going to say incredible because just because I know your wealth of information, but it's available for pre-order right now, and we'll get into a little bit more of that. But it's called 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. Now, Kevin is also a guest speaker at various sportsman shows, speaking engagements, and webinars where he teaches bushcraft and survival skills. And he's even been featured on the History Channel as an on-air survival expert. Now, on top of all of that, Kevin is also an accomplished martial artist with ranks in applied self-defense and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and he's an instructor in Sayak Kali Filipino martial arts. He also has extensive tactical firearms training, but it's his expertise when it comes to wilderness survival that we're after today. Now, to learn more about Kevin and his training, make sure that you visit him online at www.kevinastella.com. And that's K-E-V-I-N. E-S-T-E-L-A dot com, or go ahead and check out his bio on our website. All right, Kevin, let's go ahead and jump into this. Now, 
let's start with what not to do. Cause a lot of times I think that like, it's the mistakes we make that are like, we build our own obstacles to our, to the end result that we're trying to get to. And so when, when it comes to fire building, I think the same thing, like it's, it's the mistakes that people make. It's not necessarily the, um, the technical how to's, but they can actually work against themselves. So what, you know, I know in like in your, um, in your fire building classes that you do, your wilderness survival classes, when you see people come there and trying to build a fire, what are the maybe the biggest mistakes that you see them make when it comes to actually getting that fire started? So Jeff, one of the one of the biggest mistakes that I see people making when it comes to, to making a fire is that they, they don't have the patience that's needed to to properly build that fire from a small flame or a spark onto the roaring campfire that they're looking for. And often what happens is someone will will get the fire going and they'll try to go too big too soon. You know, they'll try to jump in the size of the diameter of the fuel, say like pencil size kindling to say full size fuel. That's like the thickness of your wrist or your arm. So they jump too big too soon and then the fire burns out before it can ever really get a chance to get going. That's definitely way up there on my list. Or perhaps you know, people are using a ferro rod and they're trying to, to scrape it and they're, they're not letting the scrape, they're not letting the sparks hit the tinder and ignite properly. They're scraping it again and they're actually snuffing out the flame. So I think the lack of patience as a broad category is a major reason why people don't get fires going. I think another very, very common mistake uh, that I've seen, I don't know how many times, is that once people do get a fire going, they've been so focused on building the fire that they haven't been able to maintain it. So they don't collect enough resources to keep the fire going. And it's often like the, the mad scramble to, you know, run to the wood line, grab some more wood, run to the, you know, to the outside of the field, grab some more wood, instead of having everything ready to go for as long as they need to, to burn the fire. And I think one of the really, really important things to consider, which is a, a major mistake, and, you know, I'd be a fool not to mention it, is people sometimes build fires that they're not prepared to put out. You know, and, you know, I hate to say that uh, experience is a great teacher when that experience might result in a forest burning down or, you know, the California wildfires or whatever it may be. So I think those are the three biggest mistakes. I think a lack of patience. I think not having the right materials on hand at the, the from the start. And I think also pre- not being prepared to put out a fire that you're starting are definitely my top three. Yeah, I think the other thing I would add to that, because um, you br- the first one you brought up was patience. And the very first wilderness survival class that I took on fire building, we did the, the bow and drill method. And I think people... I think people think it's easy to start a fire. And I think it's because normally when you're trying to start a fire, it's under ideal conditions, like in your fireplace at your, in your house or whatever. Sure. And we started out with about 20 people trying to make a fire with a bow drill. And I'll be honest, I wasn't able to actually get the fire started. And that was after about 20, 25 minutes of trying to do it. Now, that's the bad news is I wasn't able to get that fire going in that first class. But the good news is I was one of only two people that even stuck around after like, trying to do it after about like seven minutes or so. It was just me and one other guy who wouldn't leave because I wouldn't leave. Like he, he would be damned or he was going to be like, you know, just be, he wanted to be like the last guy trying. And I kept trying. There was smoke. There was everything. But it's like everybody just, it was amazing how many people just gave up after about five, seven minutes. Like this is never going to work, even though they've seen it work. And so I think that's really, I think people don't put it into practice because they just think it'll be easy. Everything will be fine. Everything will be ideal and um, nothing to work on here. It'll, it'll just be good to go. 
Yeah, the the bow drill is one of those skill sets that, I mean, if anything else, it should inspire people who are not proficient with it to never leave the house without a Bic lighter in their pocket. <laughs> From the instructor standpoint, the bow drill is probably one of the best exercises that I can give to my students that will let me judge their character. Because mm -hmm. in that moment of, you know, either patience or not patience, I can see who's going to try to rally and help the next person get it, who's going to be the tyrant and, you know, not give away the secrets <laughs> of, of how to do it. You know, what I mean, like, it's a great it's a great confidence builder from the student perspective, from the instructor perspective, it gives me an instant read on a person's character. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. But it's also a really good point, like never leave without like a lighter, right? Like, I think you're right. It's like to see how hard it is makes you, you know, more, more engaged with making sure that you don't make it that hard. And so one of the things on, on you being an established survival expert like I always wonder what people put in their own fire starting kit. Like I have a fire starting kit that is in my butt. It's in my bug out bag and I have one inside of my vehicle. And so I'm a big proponent of planning that stuff out ahead of time, being able to do that. So, so let me ask you, I mean, I'm assuming that you have some sort of like fire building kit that you use or you, you, you keep contained in one area. What do you have? Like, what does your fire building kit contain? Well, my fire building kit, I mean, if we start with what I never leave the house with, I always have a big lighter in my pocket that has some combination of bicycle inner tube that's been cut up and wrapped around it or duct tape. I find that both of those duct tape and bike inner tube work fantastic for working as a fire extender. So I can light them up and use mm -hmm. them to, to get my fire going. And then attached to my Swiss Army knife, I have a, a small ferro rod from uh, Exotac that has a little capsule in the back for a piece of tinder. I think it's called the fire rod. So I never leave home without two means of starting fire on me. And in fact, if I go, if I dig through my wallet, I'm sure I can find a Fresnel lens. So at very minimum, I have two, maybe three uh, means of, of starting fire on me. But in terms of a dedicated kit that rides in my bag or inside my car, it's usually just a, another combination of those. It's, it's probably a more uh, robust lighter, you know, something that has like a waterproof like a waterproof shell to it. Again, I'll mention Exotac. They make something called the fire sleeve and it just takes a Bic lighter and it makes it waterproof. It's either that or I'll have my Zippo lighter that I've, I've filled up and I've put electrical tape around the outside to keep the fuel from evaporating. So it's usually some type of robust lighter. I like the Yuko matches or the UCO matches that are basically like mini road flares that you can carry with you because sometimes you want a spark to start a fire. Sometimes you want a, a flame. And I find that even if I'm traveling with a group of students that haven't really become proficient with the ferro rod, worst case scenario, if I ever got injured, then they'd be able to use my kit with some familiar items like matches and a lighter to get things going. But I think one of the most important things to carry, and I, I love these, it's a company called Firestarter Specialists. They make this new Tinder, which I think they call Tinder plugs. My friends joke around. They say that they look like Cheetos. Like anytime I post a picture, they're like, oh, you're carrying those Cheetos around again. But they're really fantastic uh, wax-based fire starters, and, uh, or I should say tinder. And they burn for, for an extended period of time, and I can, I can cut them up into different portions to use just as much as I need. So if I look at my fire kit, there's some type of flame-based fire starter, whether it's matches or a lighter. There's a ferro rod, and there's man-made tinder that I'm carrying with me. Those are the, the very bare minimum in my, my fire kit. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always wonder about like what the best Tinder is as far as, you know, there's so many different ways to, um, to do it between, you know, petroleum jelly and cotton and magnesium shavings. And there's like, 
there are, there are a lot of different ways. I've never heard of the one. I'm going to check that out and we'll put that in the resources section also, uh, for this, for this podcast for everybody. Just, you'll find the link in the, uh, in the resources on the, on the blog. But, um, yeah, I always wonder, like, um, there's, there's so many ways to do that. Never, uh, but I always just wonder, like, what is the best, like, what is the best one? We, I guess we can get into that. The only other thing I would add, uh, the, the other thing that I do add into my own kit is like a, a mini bellows because one of the things I found, like, just sitting there trying to, like, blow that fire. Once you get it kind of going a little bit, it's like you're trying to blow and blow, and it's like all of a sudden you start getting lightheaded. You feel like taking a nap, and the mini bellows, which is this, like, it almost looks like a, an antenna on a car. Car antenna, yeah. Car yeah. antenna, right? Yeah, exactly. And I just, uh, that thing makes it so, it just harnesses that, that oxygen, that wind without making you pass out with, you know, face foot on dirt, but yeah, uh, it's pretty powerful. That thing. I mean, I've got a couple of them. I use them to get the campfire going in the morning when it's just coals. Pretty cool story. I found out that the guy that owns that company, if we're thinking of the same one, he's actually a, uh, a retired Vietnam veteran who just makes those. And that's, that's really his income now. So whenever I can, I, I, I tell people about him, and I think on the outside of his box, he actually has the Vietnam service uh, ribbon, which is kind of cool. So it's yeah. a, you know, to help support a veteran right there. Yeah, cool. All right. All right. Listen, everybody, we've been talking with Kevin Estella of kevinestella.com about no BS firemaking, really. And of course, we have a lot more to get to, including TP style, log cabin style. I mean, what is the best stick structure for starting a roaring fire. Also, beating the impossible odds, getting a flame when Mother Nature is giving you the middle finger and trying to ruin your day with a, with a pouring rainstorm. And also, how to build a covert fire to avoid attracting unwanted guests to your location. All that and more coming right up, but first, check out this special message. In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them. And how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can. If you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Kevin Estella of kevinestella.com, getting his best tips for impossible fire starting when getting a flame could mean the difference between life or death in a survival scenario. Now's where we get into the juicy how-to stuff. So let's go ahead and jump back in our interview. So Kevin, what is the best way to build a fire? I know you said like one of the mistakes that a lot of people make here is not really like getting the, the start of the fire built the right way. I mean, even before they try 
putting a spark to it. And, and so what is, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, what are the best ways to, to prep your fire before you ever try to take out the ferro rod or lighter or anything? What, what's the best way to get, increase my chances of success? So I think in terms of, of starting fires to, to really maximize your success, what you've got to do is you got to first think about your environment. If your environment has a lot of evergreens, a lot of softwood, chances are you're probably going to find no shortage of what's referred to as squaw wood. If you look on the, the underbelly, so to speak, of, of the evergreen trees, you know, right at the base, you're going to notice a lot of very fine twigs that are, you know, pencil lead in thickness and they're very easily broken off and you can create a very, very large twig bundle. And that twig bundle, once you put a flame to it, or once you you insert a piece of birch bark that you can then spark and light up from there, that's going to burn incredibly hot, but it's going to burn out very quickly. So I'm a, I'm a proponent of using twig bundles anytime I'm in, in an evergreen forest. Depending on where you are, you may find that you have cedar trees. You can use cedar bark. Uh, you may find that there are birch trees around you, any of the varieties, the yellow, the gray, the white, all of them contain oil in the bark. And I prefer the yellow birch. I find that that's the easiest to harvest and harvest it in, in copious amounts. Something that I always recommend is I, I tell people, don't just collect what you're going to need for one fire. Collect an additional amount just in case that initial amount didn't start your uh, larger kindling and small fuel on fire. You can always stoke it a little bit with a little extra, little extra tinder. So I think it's very environmental and, and very uh, dependent on where you are to determine what's going to get a fire going. In terms of a fire layup, whether you're using a teepee or a log cabin, you know, fire lay, I think one of the easiest ones to teach newcomers is to think of just one corner of a log cabin. You know, some people call it a 90 degree corner fire. You're basically just going to create a platform, you know, create a base, and you're going to start laying your varying fuel sizes at 90 degree angles, creating one corner of a log cabin with the point of that corner facing in the direction that the wind is blowing. So that way, once you place your tinder at the base of that, the wind will blow it into that corner and light up all your all your material all at once. So it's always important to be aware of where the prevailing wind is coming from. So that way you can use it to your advantage instead of it working against you. But again, I think it's highly, highly uh, environmentally dependent where you are, what you're going to seek out for your tinder and all your your different resources. And the better tools that you have, if you have a, a folding saw, if you have a, a hatchet, it's going to make it easier for you to process certain wood that you might not just be able to get at the good dry wood without. So I'd say be aware of your, your location, be aware of what's around you and have good tools with you to, to get your fire going. So, so let me ask you, I mean, my audience knows like wilderness survival is not my, it's not my area of expertise. And I've never, I've never, I mean, some of them may have, have heard of the, like the structure that you gave to your fire here, but I just want to make sure I'm getting it right. So I understand like, um, kind of making a V it's making a 90 degree angle. So are you saying that like the smaller tinder, like in my mind, I'm picturing like a wall of, of sticks that's kind of shielding the wind and then you're building the fire behind that corner. Are you saying that like the bottom tinder is actually like that, that V or that 90 degree angle, like that is the actual fire or is that just kind of shielding the wind? So uh, you actually are going to allow the wind into the fire. So that way you don't have to put your face down next to it and, and blow into it. And, you know, there's ways of, of mitigating how much wind is getting into your fire lay just by surrounding your fire with rocks or with larger logs, damp logs, if you don't want it to, to burn excessively large. But you're, you're basically just creating that 90 degree, 90 degree corner 
And imagine if you were to say, like, put the kid with the dunce cap sitting in the corner, mm-hmm. <laughs> facing the corner, that's where you're building the fire. So to help visualize it, you're going to be building the fire from the, from the inside angle of that corner. And as the fire gets larger and larger, you're just going to keep adding the larger fuel on top of the last piece that was added, building that 90 degree angle up until eventually, you know, your fire is burning and you don't have to worry so much about angles. You just have to worry about not snuffing it out by, by gotcha. placing too much too soon. Gotcha. Okay, cool. All right. Well, so, so let me, I'm going to put you really to the test here because I think, uh, sure. you know, I mean, every, I've been in situations where it's been pouring rain outside and trying to get a fire going is, is next to impossible. So, I mean, let's go ahead and do it under those extreme conditions. Cause if you're under ideal conditions, of course, it's going to be all the easier, but let's say that it really is it's pouring rain outside and you're not inside of some cave somewhere, some, some convenient cave that you stumbled upon, but like you're really out in the elements, but you've got to get a fire going. What, what are some of the things that you can recommend as what are the secrets of building a fire under these kind of extreme conditions? So what's really interesting is I just received a Facebook notification, like the Facebook timeline. They're like, oh, what happened five years ago or four years ago? And it was actually a flashback to a course that I taught in probably the worst weather that I've ever experienced as an instructor. It was down in Whiteford, Maryland at my buddy Scott Gossman's place. And this was a course that we actually had to cut short because he has a couple ponds on the property and the ponds were overflowing and they were washing away the road. <laughs> so this might be the worst weather I've ever taught in. And one of the things that we had people doing, we were running our course out of like pocket survival kits or pocket emergency kits. And, you know, they had an emergency blanket and they had fire starters and tinder, but all the wood was incredibly wet. There, there's no finding dry wood unless you actually start shaving to the inside and finding the wood that was, that wasn't completely penetrated through with water. And in order to get a fire going, I mean, these guys were, were a bunch of studs. There's no doubt about it. These guys, they, they sacrificed their, their shirts. They were trying to light their tinder inside their shirt, just trying to shield it from the, the rain. You know, I sound like Forrest Gump, but there was rain that was coming down and rain that was coming sideways and rain that was coming back up. They were finding places to, to get the fire going in a sheltered environment and then put it into almost like an exoskeleton of like a fire ring and of, you know, trying to block as much of this rain that was coming down. Other guys were teaming up with other guys, holding the emergency blanket, creating like a, like an A-frame shelter for the fire lay until the fire could burn hot enough. And what a lot of people don't realize, and that's important to note, is that if a fire is burning hot enough, it doesn't matter if rain's getting on it because that rain is going to almost instantly turn into steam. It's going to, it's going to evaporate. So, these guys were, were total champs when they did this. They were lighting the fires inside their shirt. A couple of the guys were using lip balm because it had a, had a petroleum content to it. And they were scratching off the bottom of their t-shirts, creating lint. So even if you don't have dry cotton you know, in your kit, you can still use the lint that you can make off of your t-shirt mixed with your lip balm. These guys were doing everything in, in, under God's creation, and they were able to get fires going. I think it's it's really possible, but you just have to assess your willingness. Are you willing to to ruin the bottom of your shirt, you know, the hem of your shirt to get a fire going? Are you willing to to give up that chapstick that you got at the gas station to get a fire going? Or you know what I mean? Like 
I think people can get fires going, but they have to maintain that willingness and they can't be, they, they can't be set back by not getting it. I mean, they're going to, they're going to fail and they're going to fail, but each time they're maybe warming up that wood a little bit more or those, that fuel a little bit more until that fire is ready to take. And who knows, maybe that time that you gave up was the time right before it was actually going to happen. So I think, <laughs> I think some of the tips are just be perseverant. I would say create a shield if possible with your body, with your clothes, with with whatever materials you have on you. If you can, use the buddy system. And when, when, whenever possible, just start thinking outside the box. Look for wood where wood can be found that's dry, and that's usually on the inside. And again, just never give up, man. You know, that's that's really the key. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, I mean, they're obviously some of these guys are in teams and they can help one another and do things like that. And if somebody is solo, I guess, you know, creating, um, you know, while somebody might be able to use their body to shield it in the situation, like if you're, if you're in a, a true wilderness survival situation, you're gonna have to make a shelter anyway. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get a heck of a lot of sleep when it's pouring rain on top of you. So being able to make some kind of a shelter that would stop as much of that rain to at least get things started. I guess you could always move your, you know, once you get that fire going and it's really roaring and the rain isn't going to really bother it anymore, you can either make another shelter for yourself or I'm just thinking out loud because I've been in those situations where it has been raining outside and I'm thinking, what can I use to shield it? Oftentimes I'm in the woods where just being around trees, they can shield some there, but yeah, you're going to have to kind of create that stuff. And, and I think you're right. Like I think, I've, and you've probably seen this in your classes where, where people have to get creative. They do get creative, especially if it was a situation where it was life or death, but which brings back the persistence and, you know, you just got to kind of keep going on. But uh, yeah, it's interesting that you've had to like really field test people under those kind of conditions. That's cool. Yeah. And I'll tell you the, if you're going to have any garment in the outdoors that, you know, if you're really thinking about, all right, I might need to use this as a shield to protect the flame as I'm trying to build it. You really can't beat wool. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great high tech fabrics that are out there, but you know, I think guys would be more willing to try to spark up a fire or light a match or, you know, use a lighter inside of a, a garment that's fire resistant. Notice uh-huh. I'm not saying fireproof, you know, as opposed to say that $500, you know, Gore-Tex jacket that, you know, one single pinhole in and, you know, it's ruined. So I'd say you have to really consider your fire starting on all levels, including the clothing that you wear before you leave the house. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, that's really, really important. Hmm. Okay, got it. Listen, one of the, I mean, one of the things we talk about is also the danger of other people. So, you know, there might be situations where someone has had to evacuate an area, but there's other people around and it's, you know, so you can build a fire to send a signal to be rescued, but sometimes you don't want to be rescued. Sometimes you don't want to be noticed. Sometimes there are, you know, the survival zombies out there who you don't want to attract your location because they might come, you have food, they don't have food. Now you don't have food. So there's all kinds of reasons there. So when we need a fire, we want a fire. Maybe we have to boil water in order to drink it or something. How do we build a kind of a covert fire so that it doesn't attract unwanted attention? So it's, I'm glad that you said the word protection. I wrote an article not too long ago and a magazine editor said to me, oh, well, we can't use that because, you know, it sounds like you're paranoid and, you know, we're trying to present a a happy, you know, picture of camping and whatnot. And I said, well, the chief priority that you have in all aspects is protection. You know, you got to protect yourself. You got to protect your people. And I said, when you're looking for a campsite, you got to think protection, you know, two-legged, four-legged critters. One of the things that, that we talk about in SIOC, and I had a discussion not too long ago with one of my, my, my mentors there, Tom Kyer, 
we talk about the idea of, of protection in terms of setting up your camp, you know, always having an egress point, always having awareness of what resources could attract people. Like you said, those that don't have it, that don't want to venture into your camp to get it from you or from the surrounding area. And one of the things that is, or, I mean, it's the dinner bell is when you light that fire and whether it's because of light signature or it's because of smoke signature or it's the sound of prepping firewood, you know, which is just cracking of cracking of sticks, which can be heard so far at night. And during the daytime, if the wind is down, you know, there are a few discrete ways of building fires that you can, you know, you can use to, uh, to limit your presence. I mean, obviously, a lot of people know the Dakota fire pit where you're essentially building a, a chimney inside of a hillside or in the dirt, which is going to eliminate a lot of light signature. And if it's built correctly, it's going to eliminate a lot of smoke signature. But I mean, there are ways of building fires in urban environments that, that work really well. I mean, if you've never traveled to the city and you've never seen a bunch of homeless people burning inside of a 55-gallon drum, you don't see the flame, but you see the glow on their face when they're nearby. Mm-hmm. And if you've never been to a high school party, you don't know that when you stand next to a 55-gallon drum, it's radiating heat like crazy. So th- if there's nothing to reflect that light off of and above that fire, you can huddle pretty comfortably next to the can and get a lot of heat as well. Or, and especially if you poke holes in the side, you know, you'll have limited light that's coming out through the side. On a smaller scale, you can use a, a roll of toilet paper and some rubbing alcohol and put it inside of a paint can. And that'll burn like a candle for a very, very long time, creating both heat, light. And if you need to snuff it out, you just put the lid on the paint can and it's reusable over and over and over. You know, one of my friends, Terry Barney, he's a proponent of the H fire where you just dig a giant H into the ground. Like picture the H is a set of flaps. And you can build your fire inside that H. And then as soon as you're done, you close up the flaps and there's very, very minimal trace that you were there. You could cover up the, you know, the slits in the H with some leaves or whatever debris that you have on you. But I mean, if you imagine pulling up a chunk of grass, like a panel, that's what the H fire is. There, there's a whole bunch of ways of, of building fires. And, and don't get me wrong, a fire in the open can be seen a very long distance. But if it's protected by most sides by a tree, you can stay pretty warm with the really small fire. And I think the last one that I'll mention really quickly, you know, and we've had people do this on winter survival classes, is which is a standard GI poncho, like maybe a $40 investment if it's a brand new one, and a, a few votive candles. If you sit cross-legged on top of like a foam pad and you put the, the poncho out on all sides of you and you light that votive candle and you put it between your legs where it's not going to burn you, and just don't fall asleep so you don't burn your crotch, that will warm up the inside of that poncho to the point where it's actually almost uncomfortable. But it gets so warm because that poncho is retaining all the heat and it works really, really well. And no one will know that you have a fire going that's keeping you warm because the light is covered and it's such a small flame that it's really not giving off any smoke. Yeah. That's a really good point. And, and, you know, I I hadn't really thought of that before, but you're right. I mean, it's not just the fire itself that could draw attention, but it's also the, the sounds of you getting ready to make a fire, chopping wood, you know, things like that. You're right. That sound really can travel and, and attract people before you even get a spark going there. The other thing I, I was yeah. going to ask you about was um, like the, disp- so the smoke. So, okay. We talked about light, but like smoke going up is something that can be, can sometimes be seen for a while. I mean, I guess if you had, depends on the materials that you're burning and whether it's making that kind of smoke, but does doing that, like, I was wondering, like under trees and things like that, does that dissipate the smoke? Does it spread it out more? Does it, does it hide it at all? 
Yeah, when, when you're building a fire underneath a tree, it will hug the tree side. It will go up through the leaves and it will will dissipate it a little bit. I mean, it really, like you mentioned, it comes down to the materials that you use. I mean, if you're using wood that is still very, very wet, it's going to smoke like crazy. If that fire isn't burning efficiently, it's going to smoke instead of burn burn properly. The interesting thing, Native Americans back in the day, they used to use alder which is found in, in wetlands, you know, very, very commonly. And sometimes it's referred to as piss alder because when you burn it, it stinks. But alder doesn't really smoke when, when you burn it. So when Native Americans were in territory that was occupied by, by hostiles, they would burn alder. So it really comes down to like, like, don't get me wrong, survival is cool from like a ground level, like saying, hey, I can survive in the woods. But the more and more you get into survival, you realize it's not just, you know, carrying gear. It's learning how to utilize the resources. And that's kind of where bushcraft and survival kind of kind of overarch into each other. Because when you can identify, oh, that's alder. I'm going to use that to build a fire. Hmm. Oh, I'm not going to use pine to build my fire because it's going to leave soot on the bottom of my pots. Like, I think the next level of, of skills beyond just doing it well is doing it better. And that's knowing the resources that you have around you. Yeah. Awesome, man. Really good information. Guys, this is a, this is more than, more than I was asking for. I really appreciate all the tips here. Listen, everybody, I think if you, if you get one message from all of this, like this is really good. Like there's really good tactics in here. There's really good tips. There's really good gear that you can go out and shop for now. But the real point here is like you need to get out there and fail and then succeed and then fail again and then succeed. Like, and, and don't just go out there like for the kids, you know, Cub Scout camp out and it's ideal conditions and everybody's like, Oh, look at, look at the nice fire you put together, but go out there when it's raining and try and build a fire, go out there and try and use that bow drill that you thought was going to be easy. Like go out there and really, because let's face it. I mean, if you're in a survival scenario, like the conditions typically aren't probably going to be, especially if it's a disaster scenario, like a hurricane or something like that. And you're now out, it's grid down scenario. Maybe you don't have shelter anymore. These are things that you're, they're going to be under worse conditions. And so why not get out there and actually practice these? You have a really good list here now of, of items that you can use. Go look up and see what an alder tree even looks like. I'm going to have to do that. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's really good information. I really appreciate this, Kevin. Uh, listen, everybody, go over and check out Kevin's. He does, he does have training courses out there. He's got a new book coming out as well. His website is kevinestella.com. I'm going to go ahead and give you that spelling again. It's K-E-V-I-N. E-S-T-E-L-A.com. You go over his website. There's also going to be links over there. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. And his book is available right now for pre-order. It comes out in the middle of April, depending upon when you're listening to this. But it's called 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. And uh, I've already got my pre-order in. I'm looking forward to getting it and writing a review for him here. And uh, go out and grab it, guys. This is the kind of stuff that you're going to find in it. So until the next Modern Combat and Tarot broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare, train, and survive. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. <laughs>